Hi, I'm Awista Ayub, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 10 new Class of 2021 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Jonathan Blitzer, a Class of 2021 Emerson Fellow. Jonathan is a staff writer at The New Yorker. He is at work on a book about immigration in Central America for Penguin Press. Tentatively titled The Golden Door, it will be a narrative history of regional migration to the U.S. from the 1980s to the present, with a focus on El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Jonathan is a recipient of an Edward R. Murrow Award and a National Award for Education Reporting. In 2018, he received the Immigration Journalism Prize from the French American Foundation and a Media Leadership Award from the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Jonathan, congratulations on your acceptance again. Thank you so much. So to start, can you frame your project for us? Uh, and that will hopefully uh, help frame the conversation from here. Sure. So over the last 10 or 15 years, the nature of immigration at the U.S. southern border has changed in profound ways. What used to be the case through much of the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s was that single adults, often from Mexico, were the people who were found crossing the border seeking employment opportunities, work in the U.S., Uh, But over the last 10 or 15 years, the profile of those who were showing up at the southern border started to change. And what you began to see increasingly were unaccompanied children from Central America and also families seeking asylum from Central America. And the three countries where people were preponderantly leaving to come to the U.S. were El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, the so-called Northern Triangle of, of Central America. And so the idea of this book in many ways is to explain kind of the historical underpinnings of this shift, how we got here, what it means, because many of U.S. uh, legal and political institutions are are designed for a conflict that actually no longer really applies at the southern border. Uh, And so the hope is to, to tell a broad and sweeping story from the 1980s to the present, being able to orient and lead readers through the broader context surrounding some of the immigration stories that that now as a country we're living with but whose origin stories I think a lot of Americans don't know. So you've written quite extensively for The New Yorker about immigration. For several years now, I've read many of your pieces, and they're really dynamic and and certainly very engaging. And so can you just tell me more about how that became your focus for the writing that you've done for The New Yorker, but also for this book? Yeah, I appreciate that. I I think the most striking thing in covering immigration-related stories is just the extent to which there are these kind of corridors between space and time that lead back and forth between the U.S. and countries in the wider region, Uh, obviously in Latin America writ large, but specifically in Central America. And that's actually what really drew me to the topic more than anything else, was that over the course of reporting that I had been doing over the years in Central America, specifically in in El Salvador, uh, I started to find these kind of portals in space and time. And, you know, I'd find myself in El Salvador speaking to someone who had grown up in L.A. and who spoke with real specificity about the American experience in L.A. And there were all kinds of permutations of this. You know, you could find yourself in uh, a rural part of the U.S., either in the south or out west, and you'd find yourself talking to someone whose life in many ways had been kind of transplanted, say, from the western highlands of Guatemala to an agricultural community in South Florida. Um, and and it, were, it, it tended to be these kinds of connections that really reinforced for me the need to tell this broader story. And of course, what I and every other immigration reporter has felt, particularly in the last four years, but really forever, is 
a sense of, to be honest, frustration and, and even exasperation that the political discourse around immigration issues, which is, of course, so politicized, so polarized, tends to treat the immigration story as a story that starts at the southern border, when in fact, as anyone who's covering this stuff knows, the moment when this story approaches the U.S. southern border tends to be really the end of the story, not the beginning. And so, so the idea behind this book and behind a lot of the reporting is to actually structure a story so that readers or listeners, people who are interacting with it in some way, can come to understand that the story they've been tuning into and that's, that's sort of filtered through the political discourse in the U.S. actually is a, a grossly truncated version of what's been going on for years. And one of the goals that you stated in your application was to really have this be a narrative nonfiction driven story, really. And as you tell the story, and also as you try to work towards that goal for the book, can you talk about the reporting process for it um, and how you're working towards ensuring it is a narrative driven narrative? The hardest thing about telling this broader story, because it is so sweeping and it spans obviously multiple countries and multiple decades, is to make sure that really at no point is, say, a reader of this story just kind of hit over the head with, you know, mass of historical summary. Um, because these stories are, in fact, so dynamic and real and personal. I think the, the real virtue of, of good narrative reporting, but also the challenge, is to find a way of teasing out the broader historical and political story through people's actual lives. And, and I think the kind of the most compelling thing about doing this reporting is actually seeing all of the ways in which some of the big ticket items in Washington, say, or in different foreign capitals in Central America, actually have met, meant very profound and concrete things to individual people. And so the reporting, a lot of the, the struggle of doing that kind of reporting tends to be finding the right people. Everyone is affected by these broad historical, social, political, climate forces. I mean, everyone interacts with their world, with aspects of their world in, in ways that are acute and particular. But I think the real challenge for, for structuring this story is finding people whose stories really kind of dovetail with some of the broader movements of different eras uh, that are relevant to this kind of full picture. And so a lot of the reporting there, I have to be honest, is, is kind of trial and error. And, and that's where the reporting I've been doing for the last several years has come in handy because I've just met so many people over the years in the U.S., in the borderlands, in southern Mexico, in El Salvador, in Guatemala, wherever who have in turn led me either to friends of theirs or to family members or who've spoken to me in greater depth about their own experiences. And so really there's no one who figures in this book and or there's no one who will figure in this book who hasn't kind of come into to my life as a reporter over an extended period, often for many years, if not many, many months. And so the idea with a lot of the reporting is that some of it has to just unfold. You have to sort of put yourself in a position to meet people and to be exposed to people whose stories open your eyes. And as you can imagine, it, that, that takes just a huge amount of effort and, and also, above all, good luck. And so that, that's really been, I think, the kind of the biggest challenge. And then also figuring out, too, okay, how do I filter some of these more particular elements of the history? So let's say, a, you know, a congressional fight over a really influential piece of legislation. How do we bring that to view in a way that doesn't feel like just a kind of recapitulation of Washington politics? And so the hope, too, through all of this is to almost have a kind of pointillist approach to a big historical topic 
So by, by virtue of zeroing in on individual people who intersect with this broader story in very specific ways, by narrating out those little moments in people's lives, it allows you as the storyteller here to gradually pan out and allow readers to really see the, the full view that takes shape over the course of decades. And so if all goes according to plan, this will be your first book. And so I'm curious about the writing process for you and why you're able to do with this narrative that you're not able to do with some of the longer form pieces that you write for The New Yorker. Yeah, I mean, I'm spoiled at The New Yorker because I obviously always have a lot of space. And that space, because I'm spoiled, never feels like enough. So I, I'm, I'm obviously thrilled to have the chance to, to really go deep on some of these stories. You know, I think what tends to happen in, in New Yorker stories or in long form narrative journalism is that, you know, you go often as deep as you can, but that there's, you know, there are very practical constrictions on, on how you tell these stories. And, and often, you know, what you're kind of reduced to, particularly when you're dealing with history or kind of complex, let's say, sociological topics, is you're trying to you're trying to reflect elements of those broader stories in a magazine piece. You're trying to kind of pull out salient and revealing details that stand in for bigger histories or bigger trends or bigger forces. And this book, I think, will be a chance to really actually almost pursue every lead, as it were, in the telling of these stories. The approach that I'm taking to the writing, and as you say, I mean, this is, this is, my, this is my first go at it, is actually to sort of write through, report out and write through the lives of some of the main characters or figures in the book. And then to begin to fill in their worlds around them. And, and, you know, we'll see how this goes as I undertake it. But, you know, the idea will be, let's say there's one person who appears in the book who kind of comes on the scene in the early 1980s and whose story I follow to until 2015. Obviously, in the context of a book, you're going to be moving chronologically. Things are going to interrupt this person's account. You're going to introduce other characters. But I actually think one of the keys to getting this reporting and writing right in this particular case is actually really living with some of these characters through the duration of their stories. And so the writing strategy I'm bringing to it is to actually kind of write out character by character what each of those full trajectories is. And then with time, begin to weave it together with some of the other stories and plot lines in the book. Um, and so obviously it will take a, a huge amount of writing and reworking and, and a great deal of, of structuring. But I also think that one of, the, one of the important things, particularly now under the present circumstances where we're all kind of in these uncertain places with the pandemic, and, and I'm not sure to what degree travel will be possible in the next several months, it's also important for me to have the voices of some of these characters in my in my head, in my ear, as I as I do the writing and reporting. And so kind of writing through the lives of each of these characters as I go also allows me to kind of keep up that dialogue. And in many instances, the dialogue remains quite literal. I mean, I speak to many of these sources multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times a day, so that I, I've always got the kind of the cadence and the hum of their voice in my ear as I'm setting out to 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 put their story onto the page. So one of the points that you made in your application was that the story of Central American migration to the U.S. from the 1980s to present, that it shifted, right? And that it looks different then than it does now. So can you talk about that difference? What was then and what is now? Yeah, I think the, I think the real shift in, in the last you know, decade and a half has been that now there is an asylum crisis at the southern border. Now, I, I say that, of course, at a moment in time when the Trump administration is all but dismantled the asylum system as we know it. And the coronavirus pandemic has kind of halted 
migration flows for all kinds of complex reasons. But before the very, very current moment in which we find ourselves, the crisis that the U.S. government faced at the southern border was that when you have families, huge numbers of families, coming to the southern border to seek asylum, you can't simply deport your way or enforce your way out of that situation. And despite all that the Trump administration has attempted to do to asylum law and immigration laws in the U.S., asylum seekers have enshrined human and legal rights. Uh, and so someone who is fleeing for his or her life has the legal right to place an asylum claim in the United States and to seek protection in the United States. And, and that, of course, triggers a whole long, complicated bureaucratic process of processing the particular claim that someone files, figuring out you know, what you do with that person as that claim makes its way through badly backlogged immigration courts. And so you know, there, are all, there are a whole host of policy problems that, that are actually quite complex and that the US and policymakers really are gonna need to start working through, regardless of what happens in, in 2020, this problem isn't going anywhere. And I think part of the reason it's become such a complex problem is because for years and years, the U.S. chose not to look at it. And a big part of that, and the reason why Central America looms so large in all of this, isn't just because the preponderant number of people showing up at the southern border are Central American, but also because the U.S. itself has played such a deep and profound and frankly negative role historically in Central America, specifically in, the, in each of the three countries that figure in my book, that I, I do think it's incumbent upon policymakers in the U.S. to begin to reckon with what that legacy has meant, because a lot of what we're seeing at the southern border is a reflection of the failures, not just of U.S. immigration policy, but of U.S. foreign policy. And so I really think that in order to understand what the challenges are now and, and in the future, you really have to revisit the, the period of the night, particularly the 1980s in Central America, and you have to kind of revisit it both as a historical phenomenon in which we start to look with increasing scrutiny at the U.S. as an actor in what, in what happened over the course of that decade, but also as a kind of demographic and migratory phenomenon that takes a decade or two before we start to see the full consequences of in our lives. And so that, that's really why the, the period in question here is such a dynamic and interesting one for me. So for the book, you're looking at El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. So can you explain why those countries are the focal point for this narrative? And also there was mention of mirror cities. And so can you explain that as well? Absolutely. So, you know, the most obvious reason why those three countries are at the center of this book is because really what we've seen over the last several years is nothing short of an exodus from those three countries, from the Northern Triangle of Central America. Those numbers fluctuate over time. And, you know, El Salvador, for example, there, there are fewer people now migrating from El Salvador than, than there used to be. And the numbers of Guatemalans and Hondurans have, have spiked over the years. But really, the vast majority of, of families seeking asylum at the southern border have come from these three places. And the U.S. role in each of these countries Obviously, there are all kinds of parallels in terms of how the U.S. engaged with each of these countries over time, but each story is very specific, uh, and the U.S. has had a central role in each in each one of them. And you know, the idea will be to kind of tease out what some of those stories are. So, you know, in El Salvador and in Honduras and, and in Guatemala, there were long, bloody civil wars. I mean, in in, in El Salvador, it lasted roughly twelve years. In Guatemala, it lasted more than thirty years. And the U.S. had different 
roles in perpetuating each of those war efforts. And in each of those countries, you had a, a brutally repressive military regime that tortured and killed tens of thousands of people over time. And the, in the U.S., not only helped them do it, but kind of acquiesced at, at many of the key moments in which the U.S. could have brought some justice to what was happening. So you have those historical plot lines as a, the kind of spine of the broader story. And Honduras kind of fits that broader mold and, and deviates from it to some degree. I mean, the U.S. has a, a deep, longstanding relationship with Honduras that goes back decades and frankly, more than a century. But all through the 80s, Honduras was a country that served essentially as a U.S. staging ground for its for its military incursions into nearby countries. The real kind of orthodoxy of American foreign policy at the time was the classic Cold War fixation on fighting the spread of communism and socialist governments in the region. And the U.S. really allowed all kinds of atrocities to be committed in pursuit of that Cold War orthodoxy. So the story of what's happened, though, in each of these places, this, this, the story of why people have fled en masse to the U.S. in the decades since, takes kind of different arcs. And some of this has to do with the rise of uh, criminal elements in these countries, uh, and, and U.S. deportation policy has a lot to do with that, to the, with the rise and entrenchment of gangs in the region. So that's certainly been the case really in each of the three countries, uh, although the story plays out differently. There are issues of climate change, again, which apply to the reality in all three of these countries, but for my purposes is particularly acute in the context of Guatemala. And then you have issues, for example, related to continued unchecked political corruption. This is the story of Honduras, which the U.S. has, has really largely abetted. Uh, and in some ways, what's happened over the years is that in the 1980s, the U.S. was obsessed with containing communism and limiting the spread of, of socialist or leftist regimes through Central America. And so the U.S. was willing to join all kinds of truly unsavory alliances with repressive leaders who at least promised a tough line against leftist political actors. Now, fast forward 30 or 40 years, and what you have instead of Cold War orthodoxy on that point is a complete and total U.S. fixation with stemming migration from the region. And so now, as is the case particularly in Honduras, for instance, you have the U.S. backing and supporting an openly corrupt and repressive government that says all of the right things when it comes to the issue of stopping emigration to the U.S. So the idea will be, of course, to really tease out some of these historical uh, underpinnings. And what you mentioned about mirror cities is so important, and, and I do think in many ways kind of saves a discussion of these topics from just total grimness. <laughs> Um, people are incredibly, I mean, any, anyone trying to tell a story about immigration is going to be confronted with just absolute astonishments of human ingenuity and resilience. And I want that to come through too. I mean, these stories aren't just grim and upsetting. I mean, they are in many instances, but there's so much more to them. And that I think is, is something that's really important in telling these stories is, is not just making this a kind of doom and gloom affair. And so mirror cities really represent something that has, has interested me for a long time. The, the idea of a mirror city is this, as more and more people emigrate from a particular place. So let's say, you know, a small canton in, in the Western highlands of Guatemala, um, as more and more people emigrate from that place, to uh, a locale in the U.S., let's say a part of Tennessee or North Carolina or somewhere in the U.S. in the American South, you have an accumulation over years and years of people from individual communities transferring their customs and their, their mores and all kinds of little day-to-day -day realities from a remote place in the Western Highlands of Guatemala 
to a kind of corresponding version of that town in the US. And so it doesn't matter that it's tens of thousands of miles away. You have people, families, whole communities really creating this almost mirror version of what they were leaving in a new place. And there's a, a new sort of dialogue that take, takes root between the place that people have left and the place that people have arrived in. And I do think that that's a big part of, of understanding not only what drives continued immigration, but also what makes these lives across borders so rich and dynamic and complex. So can we talk about deportation as well when it comes to that? You wrote a really great piece back in 2017 um, in which you followed Eddie and Zorro as he went back to El Salvador um, and some of the struggles that he came up against. So can you talk about the phenomenon of this chain of deportation and how that's contributing to the border crisis as well? Yeah, the story of American immigration policy over the last 25 years has in many ways really become, by and large, a story about mass deportation. The number of people that the U.S. deport each year has just steadily increased over time. And that reflects not only a broad political consensus in the U.S. that the government has to be tough on immigrants, uh, which is obviously, I think, deeply flawed, but it also has to do with the fact that Congress appropriates more and more and more resources to what is now the Department of Homeland Security, to effectuate this kind of enforcement agenda. And so you've got hundreds of thousands of people uh, over the last several years who have been deported from the U.S. In many instances, people who have led a large part, if not a majority of their lives, on American soil and who in, in many ways aren't properly, let's say, Salvadoran, as was the case with Eddie Anzora, the figure in that book, but who are kind of both, both uh, an American from Los Angeles and a Salvadoran born in San Salvador in the late 70s. And so one of the things that is so interesting and also so tragic in many ways about U.S. immigration policy is that the U.S. has created a kind of new category of global citizen, so to say, and that is the person who's been deported, who now neither belongs here nor there and has to forge this entirely new identity. And so people like Eddie who arrived in the U.S. in 1980, he was three years old at the time, and has a long and rich and extremely interesting life uh, in Los Angeles, but eventually gets deported around 2007, 2008. And by then, he's close to 30 years old. And so when he arrives back in El Salvador at that time, not only is the country much different than the El Salvador that he left, but also he is sort of inscrutable to the people he meets because he's this He's the Salvadoran-born, recently deported, Americanized Spanish speaker with a slight Mexican accent, because those are the people he spoke to, Chicanos and Mexicans in California. And he now has to figure out a life for himself. And one of the realities, sad realities for many people who have been deported in all of these countries, and for that matter, in all of the world, is that they're, you know, they end up really struggling alone without any sort of emotional, financial support, or really avenues for building a new life after they've been deported. In Central America, one of the key parts of the broader story about, about mass deportation has to do with the gangs themselves. These are gangs now that, that Donald Trump has made notorious. So MS-13, 18th Street Gang is another one of them. But the, the sort of short story of how these gangs came to be was that you had all through the late 70s and early 80s, a number of Salvadoran, actually tens of thousands of Salvadorans who fled the United States as war refugees. And they arrived in 
cities across the country, but particularly cities like Los Angeles, where in the landscape of the city at the time, they were kind of low on the pecking order. They found themselves frequently beat up, brutalized, robbed, often clashing with some of the existing gangs. There were tensions between Central Americans, Salvadorans, and Mexicans. There were tensions between African Americans and Central Americans, all of these different kind of tensions and, and, and social pressures. And, and over time, uh, what a number of these Central American refugees did was they started to form gangs of their own, really as a, as a form of self-protection on the streets of South Central Los Angeles. And over time, these gangs that they formed grew increasingly strong. Many of their members wound up in jails across California. And by the early to mid-90s, when the U.S. started deporting all of these gangsters en masse back to Central America, the gangs were transferred. The gangs effectively migrated with that mass deportation. And now one of the big reasons why some of these countries in the region have had such high homicide rates over the last several years has to do with the increased entrenchment of these Americanized gangs that were transplanted to the region as a result of mass deportation. And so in the story of, of Eddie Anzora, Eddie was not a member of any gang, but he lived alongside a lot of these gangsters, both in El Salvador and in the U.S. over the course of decades. And so he's this really unique witness to how that broader story has taken place. And I first met Eddie, to give you an example about some of the legacies of deportation, I first met Eddie because he was working at a, a call center in San Salvador. And so this is another industry that has boomed as a result of mass deportation. A lot of American companies are hiring people to work in customer service and tech support in Central America. It's cheaper for these companies to outsource those jobs. And because you have such a high volume of people who've been deported from the US, but who as a result of their time in the US speak fluent idiomatic American English, you now essentially have a customer service sector catering to American customers and staffed by Americanized deportees. And Eddie Anzora uh, is, is one example of someone who did that in his own life. And then because he's incredibly smart and incredibly enterprising, he started to spin out a life for himself that capitalized on this unique identity he had. And so that also is of great interest to me. So one of the uh, questions that you hope to ask and maybe hopefully answer through your book is what should our asylum system look like? And also what is salvageable? I mean, do you have thoughts on that given your reporting to date? The more reporting I do on that issue, the more complicated I find the policy question, which is not to say we shouldn't try to answer it. We have to try to answer it. You know, I think in many ways, one of the themes of the book, and, and this is a sort of a policy question, which I, I hope to get at from a more personal narrative angle is that the U.S. does need to overhaul its asylum system. And I think a big part of that is going to look like reinvesting money and priorities into asylum rather than immigration enforcement. So one of the things that's been most striking over the last two decades or so of American immigration policy is that each year Congress, each year really since 9-11, has given more and more money to the Department of Homeland Security and really the lion's share of that money is invested in enforcement measures, detention, border security measures, arresting forces to, to arrest and eventually deport undocumented immigrants. And that budget has ballooned. And with the ballooning of that budget have come all sorts of abuse, but also entrenchment of a kind of wrongheadedness in how the federal government deals with and thinks about immigration. If the U.S. government cared as much about standing up aspects of the legal immigration system as it did with really communicating this 
tough deterrent message about immigration enforcement, I think we would see a different reality at the southern border. So that means investing in more asylum agents. It means investing in immigration judges. It means coming up with increasingly creative ways of handling the issue of immigrant detention. So if a family were to arrive in the U.S. or a person were to arrive in the U.S. seeking asylum, right now, because of current backlogs in the immigration court system, that person spends years waiting for a judge to rule on his or her claim. That period of years needs to be reduced to a period of months. But also related to that question is, all right, what happens to the person in the meantime? Where do they wait? And you know, rather than the U.S. further building up detention capacity and hiring increasingly private companies to do that work, there needs to be deeper, more creative thinking about alternatives to detention. All of these things come bundled together. And I think that you know, it is time, it's really past time, it's been past time for years now, for the U.S. to repurpose all of this money it sinks into enforcement and to, to actually, rather than fighting the phenomenon of immigration, which is an inevitability in our world, to actually try to manage the realities of immigration. And, you know, we're not even talking about investing in the region and thinking more creatively about ways in which the U.S. can help bring the anti-corruption fight to Central America. I mean, these are all, it's this kind of holistic thinking that I think really has to happen if we're ever really to, to make meaningful progress on some of these broader issues. So the world we live in today is very different from the world we lived in January 1st of this year. But what gives you hope right now during this really challenging time? You know, one of the, one of the most worrisome aspects of the current administration is its apparent disregard for what most Americans think and care about. But I, there is a silver lining there, which I think has kind of clarified over the last few years, and particularly over the last several months, which is that I, I really do think that a broad swath of the American public, really a, a, a preponderant majority of the American public, is increasingly open-minded on issues of immigration, is increasingly feeling some form of solidarity with immigrants. I, I actually do think that the last several years have clarified what a lot of Americans really, intuitions that a lot of Americans have always had about immigrants, but I think they've in some ways taken for granted in the fight for better treatment of immigrants in America. And so I have to say that for all of the darkness of the recent, <laughs> the recent few months and, and all the kind of general headlines, I am actually increasingly confident and optimistic about just the ability of the public to engage and to care on issues that, if we're being honest, six years ago, five years ago, we're really not on people's radars in the same way. My final question, and one that I think most writers hate to answer, but where do you hope to be with your project a year from now? <laughs> um, this is going to very quickly dip into therapy for me. I, I hope in a year to really be able to have committed to the page at least big chunks of the personal stories of some of the main characters in all of this. The wrench in my plans, which is the wrench in everyone's plans right now, is, is obviously the pandemic and the fact that we can't travel to do a lot of this reporting. And so, you know, the last few months, I, I've tried to get more creative about how to do some reporting from home. But obviously, this story is about the region. It's about being in the region. It's about talking to people. And I need to continue to do that. And so my hope a year from now is, first and foremost, that there are some safe ways to travel and to re-engage with this reporting. But that in the meantime, this sort of dialogue that I've begun with some of these characters can, can actually start to manifest itself in the world of this, this book. And for me to speak very concretely, if also a bit esoterically about my project, you know, I think some of the portions of the book that I, that I hope to really 
have sort of laid down over the next year, sort of laying down track, are the, the portions dealing with the 1980s and the early part of the 1990s. I mean, those are things that I've already done a lot of reporting on. I already have extensive materials on. And now, given that I have plenty of time inside and I'm not going anywhere, my hope is I can be productive over the next several months in, in starting to write this out. Well, we look forward to supporting you. And thank you again for your time today, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this interview. If you enjoy this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2021.